Today is the fourth day of our September-October seven-day session. It's the 2nd of October 2019. And we're going now to our other text, uh, Subtle Sound, the Zen Teachings of Maureen Stewart, edited by Roko Sherry Chayat. We start off with a chapter called The Illusion of I. Shakyamuni Buddha taught many wonderful things and he taught them according to circumstances. He spoke according to the profession, the understanding and the experiences of the person to whom he was speaking. When he talked to a poet, he spoke in and of poetry. When he talked to a mother, he talked about her children. Above all, he spoke of the unity of life everywhere and of compassion for every living being. His teaching came from his own experience of the human condition, from his intuitive understanding of its essential character. The Buddha, of course, started from his own suffering and his his deep appreciation for the meaning of uh, Sickness, old age, and death. These were the first three of the four sights that he saw that 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 kicked off his his spiritual search. This is reflected in his teaching. This this jumping off point, where in the four noble truths, the first one is that unenlightened life is suffering. It's marked by suffering. Also, if you look at his his um, twelve links, again they they um, make sense when um, you work back from suffering. He, he's he's that's the process he undertook in his meditation was to um, through his own introspective introspection um, discover. The, the sources of suffering and therefore the way out of suffering. She goes on to say, Buddhism embraces all religions, all traditions. We Buddhists have deep respect for every one of them and realize that fundamentally we are all one. We may use different phrases at different times, but we are all one. Just a couple of comments on this. This is a a big generalization to say we Buddhists have deep respect for every one of the religions because unfortunately, um, even within Buddhism, you find uh, fundamentalists um, and nationalists um, who may call themselves Buddhists, but nevertheless um, don't act like Buddhists. Pe- people, Buddhist leaders, for instance, in Myanmar, who, who um, incite not only xenophobia, uh, but violence as well. So incite it and, and, and condone it at times. But I think it's fair to say that 
Buddhism is is quite well placed for respecting other um, religions in that we we um, see that all ideologies including including the teachings of Buddhism are human constructs and not and not in any sense absolute um, the Diamond Sutra and the Heart Sutra um, both uh, these Mahayana texts um, they deconstruct Buddhist doctrine they they show it up as um, uh, Insubstantial. And the and this the emphasis on, on oneness too, uh, non duality really mean if we look into this teaching then then we can we have to see that um, that we are, are Buddhist because other religions are what they are. We, we arise together in that sense. She goes on, um, this practice that we are engaged in is very down-to-earth and pragmatic. At the same time, it is preeminently of the spirit. It's it's down to earth and pragmatic because um, it puts the emphasis on praxis, on what we do. Not on on, uh, doctrine or, or what we should believe. Of course, there are there are teachings that inform what we do, and we 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 must recognise that it's not completely somehow um, neutral in that regard. And she also says, at the same time, it is preeminently of the spirit. It's of the spirit in the sense that um, we have um, we have choices that we make. We can choose to to practice or not. We can choose where we put our attention. This is this is what the, the our different practices are built on. We may not be able to control the contents of our mind and the and the our, what emotions bubble up to to the surface, but we can decide what we pay attention to and how we react to what arises in our environment and in our minds. She goes on, it is a balanced and satisfying way of life with feet firmly planted on the ground and heart open to the whole universe. This practice does not impose any creeds or dogmas upon us. It demands no blind faith, no submission to any separate deity 
or person or thing. This is an essential matter. What the, the Buddha said was, Ehi um, pasiko, come and see. He invited people, uh, in fact, to, to try the practice out and see for, for themselves whether it worked for them or not. In Buddhism, um, this is this is uh, where our faith comes from. It we're not um, required to have blind faith in the teachings, but f- to test the teachings, like like a, a goldsmith tests gold. There's another image that's used in the in the Pali Sutras. See for ourselves, and out of our experience. This is where our where our faith comes from. Everybody here is here because they have at some point had some experience that gives them enough enough faith to do this difficult practice. It may it may have been. Um, um, fleeting moments in in childhood of experiencing a sense of of oneness or interconnectedness of things. And we may have a memory of this, stronger or or more more, um, nebulous, but something that happened to us which, which gives us faith in the practice. Maybe that we experienced um, unconditional love, and this gives us the 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 motivation to um, seek to realize that in our in our own interactions. But but whatever it is, our faith is based on on direct experience. And that's what, what Zen is all about. Direct experience, not taking anybody's word for it, not even the Buddha's, that the teaching is so, but finding out for ourselves, because that has real strength. That has the power to change our life. continues in Buddhism all beings without exception are seen in the beauty and dignity of their original perfection not their original sin by our own efforts and intuitive insights we may uncover this perfection which is our real and intrinsic Buddha nature this is enlightenment our Buddhist practice deep and simple is a way of life. It is a lifelong study and practice, not only for this life, but for the next life and the next and so on. 
It can be a profound study with inner meanings and depths endlessly expanding before us. And it can also be extremely simple, just teaching the basic ethical practices of daily living, practices of unselfishness, compassion, and good will toward every living being. Now she makes this contrast here uh, between the Buddhist teaching and that of Christianity. Buddhist teaching uh, is of original perfection. And uh, we, we trace this back to um, one of the versions of what the Buddha said upon his great awakening. This comes from the Avatamska Sutra and uh, something that I mention at every workshop we give because it, it, it encapsulates the teachings upon which our whole uh, tradition, the Zen tradition, is based. And, and according to this sutra, of course we don't know what the Buddha said, or if he said anything, probably he didn't. He was alone. But there are different ways that um, his, his enlightenment is expressed in different sutras um, through uh, what he says. And in the Avatamska Sutra, he says, Wonder of wonders, all beings are Buddhas, endowed with wisdom, compassion and virtue, lacking nothing. And it is only because their minds have been turned upside down by delusive thinking that they fail to perceive this. So he's, he's... expressing his awe and wonder in this original perfection that he sees in himself and which he's opened up to on glancing up at the at Venus, the morning star. Oh. Everything, just as it is, is perfect. And we can we can contrast this with the, the teaching of Christianity, which cl- includes this notion of um, original sin uh, and Christ coming to absolve us of that sin and being the only one who can. But in, in terms of our practice, uh, our um, own process even even though this is is a teaching that that we may have um, rejected or just not seen as relevant um, it is something that is pretty ingrained in our culture and even if we we have uh, rejected it it may still be functioning in in our um, uh, conditioned responses to things it's pretty pretty common uh, for people to hold that they have some kind of a core deficit, as one writer put it, um, and many many different flavors and varieties of this. But people can can, can believe this pretty strongly. Uh, it might be. Um, I'm unlovable or I'm worthless or 
incompetent or I'm a loser and we can we can define ourselves with these with these labels can be can be helpful to realize that they are are cultural come out of our, our, our heritage there's a, there's a story that that Roshi would tell when he went to this meeting with of uh, Western teachers with the Dalai Lama, I think it was about 1994 or so, and um, somebody was talking about about the burden that many Westerners have of, of self-hatred. And um, the Dalai Lama was said to be puzzled by this because it's something he'd never heard of and couldn't imagine how people could hate themselves. And and yet it's a very very strong uh, feature of uh, people's sort of psychological landscapes to have these very disparaging um, inner voices, persistent judgments that we make about ourselves. And we can re- we can perhaps re- relate it back to uh, original sin, but also surely to consumerism we're bombarded uh, pretty much day in day out by messages about our lacks and that if we just if we just buy x or y or z or subscribe to this or that then we can expect completion fulfillment happiness of course, implying that we're incomplete, unfulfilled, unhappy, lacking. You, you, we could say that a, a consumer, which is how um, m- much of society defines us, and, and not not a citizen, not a sustainer, not not somebody who's um, has the power to give, but somebody who consumes that is somebody who's by definition um, needing to assimilate something from outside lacking if if you were to um, compare this to some aspect of the of the um, the wider universe we might we might say a, a consumer is a kind of black hole into which stuff disappears. And that black hole's never filled up. We we chant in our in our four four vows, endless blind passions I vow to uproot. That's the thing about passions is that they're endless. Our desires are endless, our our aversions are endless. But what if our core deficit was a uh, construct and something that we don't have to take altogether personally because it comes with the culture, comes with these um, uh, messages that we receive subliminally? Wouldn't it be a relief 
to to not buy in to use an image from term from consumerism or not to buy into this uh, message we have we tell ourselves over and over again what if we were originally perfect and it's just that we don't know that we are Maureen Stewart says, by our own efforts and intuitive insights, we may uncover this perfection, which is our real and intrinsic Buddha nature. We don't have to acquire anything from anywhere else. We don't have to go somewhere special. The, teach, the teaching of Buddhism is, is that we really only have to do two things. We have to stop and look. Another way of saying that is calm awareness. quieting everything down, letting it settle, and looking deeply. That's all there is to it. It's simple. She continues, Buddhism emphasizes the transiency of all material things and the illusory and impermanent nature of what we think of as our own personal ego. It also teaches the unity and kinship of all life. This practice involves mindfulness in every aspect of our lives. So it is, as Mumon says, like walking on the edge of a sword over the ridge of an iceberg, with no steps, no ladders, climbing the cliffs without hands. There is no deviation from this path, this sword's edge, this ridge of the iceberg. We must be mindfully present with whatever difficult part of the path comes along. Um, she's referring here when she mentions Mumon to one of the verses in the Mumon Khan, which goes like this. Walking along the edge of a sword, running along the ridge of an ice flow, you need take no steps. Let go your hold on the cliff. Mumon's really saying, however difficult our lives may be, um, we have only this life that's right in front of us. When you need to walk along the edge of a sword or run along the ridge of an ice floe, just do it. If you hesitate, all is lost. There's a wonderful story um, that, that John Muir tells 
um, in, a, in a memoir of uh, his, one of his dogs. Um, the dog's name was Stikeen, and I think that's the name of, the, of this, this um, piece. Uh, and he describes how at one point he was out with Stikeen on one of his um, epic um, walks through, through um, the wilderness, and I don't know where this was, but it was somewhere where there was a, a, a glacier, and the only way across was on this very, very narrow bridge of ice. And not only did he have to go across it, but Stikine did too. And it's a very moving description of, of, of this dog just at a certain point, just doing it, just going. And they do both just manage to get across. No, no aids to this. Just, just their wits, and and especially not um, encumbered by hesitation. Everything we do in the zendo, the arrangement of each object, the sitting in this wonderful posture, the walking with mindfulness, is exceedingly important. Not just in the zendo, but wherever we are, this mindfulness is important. Not to step on insects, to see if there is an impediment in the road and take care of it so somebody else doesn't fall. All of this is an extremely important part of our practice. What she's pointing to here is, in, in talking, talking about mindfulness, is that it's, it's not just um, kind of noticing what's in one's sphere of vision, though it includes that, but um, having others in mind, having awareness beyond our own narrow self-concerns. Because it's our it's our narrow self concerns which are the the true enemy, our true enemy. It's not it's not really um, that having an eye is is problematic. In fact, in order to to function, we we need this construct called the eye to function in the world. But rather, our attachment to it. Because of our attachment to our, our sense of self, um, we actually m- make that sense of self m- more concrete, more substantial, more um, opaque. We, we solidify this, this um, convention, that is useful, this useful convention, into something that we have to defend or... or Reject or uh, free ourselves from. But actually, what we really need to do is see its tenuousness. See, if we can see that, the, the, how shaky it is, then we don't really have to 
get rid of it, we just have to see it for what it is. In actual fact, we're, we're often working very hard to, to make our sense of self feel more solid. One teacher says, um, the sense of self is always trying to establish itself in things that are completely unstable or unreliable. There isn't a, an abiding place for self. We're constantly trying to, to prop it up, make it feel more real, so that we can have something to to um, shore ourselves up with. You think of the different ways in which we rely on what is unreliable and unstable for our sense of self. Uh, people's opinions of us. Our own opinions and our and our knowledge, you know, and yet that also goes eventually. Our, our memories start to not function as well. Or money, we 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 uh, get our sense of of, of self worth from how much money we have. Or it can be be investing in family but then people die they move away <coughs> fall out with us or social standing or our beauty our health physical strength with with all of these these ways in which we try to to establish ourselves we're setting ourselves up for suffering Then, of course, there is our meditation, our zazen. In awakening this intuitive mind, we awaken a deep compassion for all living creatures, not as beings separate from ourselves, but as part of our own being, as we are of theirs. This, too, we feel in the zendo. We don't talk to one another, we don't gossip about things, we don't chat about the weather. We are sitting in deep silence, sensing what it is that belongs to every human being, every animal, plant, tree, stone, the whole universe. And it makes us very compassionate and open-hearted to one another, if we permit it. This is living practice. We know now with our knowledge about the, the origins of the universe that, that everything we are right now once existed in a single point that then um, blossomed into the universe that we know now. 
So we, we, we're that intimate with each other that we, we once occupied the same point. It's like we all, we all come from that same womb. We're, we're, we are, um, not metaphorically, but literally brothers and sisters. Books are beautiful and inspiring. Lectures may help us. Scriptures are also important, but these are not enough. It is living practice that is most essential. Buddhism is not based on blind faith in anything that is written in any book, however holy. Even the preaching of Buddha himself is not to be treated in this way. The Buddha said, put no other head above your own. If it doesn't fit, don't do it. If we, if we um, follow this instruction, then um, we'll be able to practice with convic- conviction, with confidence. What our practice is based on is right understanding. This is the first step on the Eightfold Path, obtained through reasoning, study, devotion, zazen, and the practice of selflessness and love. Some people think that Buddhism doesn't have much to do with love. It has everything to do with love. It just doesn't sentimentalize at it. It doesn't get icky or gushy or oozy. <laughs> it's very practical, this selflessness and, and love practice. Don't give me a long speech about love, but show me by your action what is in your heart. Don't weep sentimentally about something and the next minute crush an insect. So what she's saying here is, okay, we may not say, I love you very much, um, but often that that statement can be freighted with all kinds of other things, like "Do you love me?" or um, "Do you do you recognize that I love you?" So it can be it can be uh, um, heavy, heavily weighed down. But she's saying instead of that, instead of instead of words, what about actions that express our love? How do we, this is a koan, we each have to kind of explore ourselves. How do, we, how do we express our love? How do we do it justice? It might be uh, being silent in a situation, not, not making a perceptive but, but sharp comment that we could make. might mean coming to session to work on ourselves, but it equally might mean missing a session to be able to stay with the one we love or our family more generally. It's not one answer to that question. 
and it's a question we, we need to ask again and again. Where, where is this coming from? Where am I coming from? Is it truly from love or from something else? When she says, don't weep sentimentally about something and the next minute crush an insect, uh, she's talking here about really about integrity. To what degree are our thought and our speech and our action lined up? With deep practice, with more and more understanding, we come to realize that we are not punished for our sins. This is not a part of our way of being. We are not punished for our sins, but by them. Whatever we do that is not loving, that is selfish, that is egocentric, that is grabby, comes home to roost. If we are in pain, if we suffer, we need to examine where it comes from. Probably it issues from some activity that is not unselfish, that is selfishly motivated. We suffer because we want so much, because we think that situations should be different from the way they are. This is, this is a pretty good short definition of um, attachment to self. We suffer because we want so much, because we think that situations should be different from the way they are. We want to be, we want to be first, or special, or better. more recognized. Less neurotic. More enlightened, that's a big one that we all struggle with. But actually in practice, even our um, loftiest aspirations to be, to be a better human being, to, to be a better parent or, or Zen teacher, even we have to we have to let go of those those aspirations because in some sense they come from a place of self they can they can get us here they can get us on the mat in the zendo but ultimately their ideas we have about things how we think things should be different rather than uh, being present to what, what is. When we're chanting the three refuges, when we take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha, what are we doing? We take refuge in Buddha, the Buddha was a great teacher. The, the historical Buddha may not ever have lived, but the presence that we think of as the Buddha, or Buddha, 
without the article is a great teaching. Um, actually, I think there's probably pretty pretty strong evidence that, that the Buddha um, did live, but we just have to realize that we how um, what we know, what we think we know about him, is. Uh, Conditioned, it wasn't this, the the Pali Suttas weren't even written down until several centuries after the time of the Buddha. But his teaching, we can we can verify that for ourselves in our lives. This is this is his his legacy. She goes on, it's not a refuge in the sense of being something or somebody who can make us feel secure. We're not hiding in the Buddha. We take in his example. The idea is that an ordinary human being came to an awakened state of mind by realigning himself to the situations around him. I think this is a very important part of our um, Tradition is that um, even as we 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 are in awe of the Buddha's attainments, at the same time he was an ordinary human being, and he he woke up by through his practice, through his his questioning and his realigning of himself as she says here this is available to every single one of us this human being disciplined himself by working on his own mind which is the source of our chaos and confusion we can't blame it on somebody else we can't hide in something we have to take full responsibility for this chaos and confusion and if we really want to do something about it, we will. We, we can change our minds. We can't often change other people or situations. But one of the things we discover is that if we really do make this effort to to change our minds, to change ourselves, then people and situations around us do change. Things are things because of mind, as mind is mind because of things. And everything is transformed to the degree that we take responsibility for our lives, that we, we own them. Own even the, the chaos and confusion. And then from there, we can do something about it. 
often we have to work by indirection, not not approaching a situation head on, but but paying attention to it. Settling the mind and the body. When someone comes to me and says, I don't really know how to integrate my practice into my work, I tell that person, don't try. Practice and work go together. If you feel that they are separate, you are bringing about a state of confusion. Whatever kind of practice you are able to engage in, however much or little, the quality, the quantity of it is not essential. This extends into your work, and the quality of your work extends itself into your practice. There is no way to separate them. If you try to separate them, then you have chaos and confusion. Whatever you are doing, do it. Just do it. And of course the place where our practice and our work come together is um, in our mind. Everything depends on mind. There's no, not a single experience we can have separate from this mind of ours. That's the definition, really, of mind, is that which experiences. What is that? What experiences? What hears my voice? What sees colors? Hears sounds? This is the key to everything, understanding this, knowing it for ourselves, tasting water and knowing whether it is warm or cold. have these beautiful conditions here for making this work for investigating this great matter let's make the most of it we'll stop here and recite the four vows All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings of I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. 
I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.